This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Susan. Thanks for joining me here today. How are you? Oh, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Wonderful. This is um, so exciting. Um, the, the This title just got my attention immediately, and I'm so excited to talk to you about it. What? You got interested in nothing. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> see, that's you what know. we were hoping would happen with the book. People see the word nothing, and they're like, wait, what? What's that? Right? Isn't it interesting that nothing always gets some attention? It does. It does. You are absolutely right. I feel as well, like I should start with a kind of content warning. When I first contacted Susan about doing the podcast, she warned me that if we were going to talk about nothing, I had to be prepared for puns. And I assured her I was ready. Reader, I was not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it should come with a a content label, shouldn't it? Special warning. The puns are real, the puns are serious, and I'm not going to apologize. Nor should you. You stand by that. Uh, So just letting you know that you're probably going to groan at some point in the next half hour. That's that's likely. Um, (laughs) All right. Well, let's talk about this. Like, you know, I want to talk about how the work fits into your current academic issue interests you're a European historian with a specific focus on memory. So how did nothing happened come about? Right. So actually, um, I've changed the way I identify myself to people um, because I used to say I'm a modern European historian. I used to say I'm a German historian because that is my my second language is German and that's where my research is focused. Um, but I found that when I told people that, um, it sort of got me into conversations about the Nazis like immediately. And that's not what to be talking about. So I started telling people that what I actually do, and this is the truth, um, I've always been a historian of historical consciousness. And that is my topic, right? But historical consciousness is such a mouthful. It just it doesn't come trippingly off the tongue, right? So people are always like, well, what does that mean? What, what I, I, you've already lost me. So I went from one bad uh, conversation starter to another because it takes too much explanation. But now when I tell people, um, they'll ask me, you know, what are you writing about or what are you working on? And I'll say, I'm doing nothing. (laughs) This big smile on my face, right? And then really don't know what to do with me. They're like, oh, my God, is is something wrong? Is she like uh, not even on sabbatical? Maybe she quit academia? She's not anything anymore? Something terrible happened to her? And here I was waiting for the big laugh, right? Which just goes to show you I was not designed to be a stand-up comedian. But um, no, I... People, I'm doing nothing and say it with a big smile and then wait for them to ask. And if they did ask, then I had the fun of telling them, no, really, I'm really doing nothing. I'm looking at what people mean when they say nothing happened. And they're like, oh, 
Of course, we say that all the time. And I'm like, okay, what about nothing is left or nothing is out there? There's nothing there. Like looking at the Arizona desert, apparently looking at open spaces, looking at an ocean. Some people will look at the ocean and say, oh, there's nothing out there. It's just blank. It's just empty. Right. And I'm like, no, there's a lot going on. And you just called it nothing. So that's what really got me started. I, I just had this sort of revelation that every time somebody said the word nothing, they really meant something. And if you can call it nothing, then you're remembering something. And then the historian of historical consciousness kicks in and says, oh, you're remembering something and you're calling it nothing. What does that say about how you perceive the past? And then the other thing I, I kind of drilled this into my students' heads, um, I always have to distinguish between the past and history. I tell them the past is what happened. It's everything. It's almost infinite. It's huge, right? We're never going to know all of it. History is what we write about it. So history is the part about memory, memory and forgetting. So if you can remember nothing, then you're already talking about the history of memory. So let's look at what people mean when they say uh, nothing happened or there's nothing left except that. And then I go, okay, what's the that? What's the except? That's what you're calling nothing, but there's something remaining. Or um, nothing is left except that, right? Nothing is out there except that. Anyway. So um, the episode that I talk about at the beginning of the book is was my inspiration, and it came out of teaching. Um, I was teaching a class on historical methodology. It's required for history majors at the University of Arizona. Probably every university or college in the world has a comparable class. And I had invited, yeah. Did, did you have to take one too? Oh, of course, yeah. Of course. Sure. And did you have to read all these old philosophers, most of whom were white men? Yeah. The way that class went. And it's changed a lot. It's gotten a lot better. Yeah, that would, I mean, it would be hard to be worse. Although I will admit I love historiography and methods. So. Oh, yeah. you're my people too. I teach a historiography <laughs> class and I teach a philosophy of history class. And Ooh. I love those students. We get a very small group of self-selected nerds who are history nerds, and they love to think about the meaning of the past. Yeah. So yeah, and how it's constructed and what, how we do the what we do and why. Yeah. But this um, is what most people think is really boring about history, right? Yeah, the what we do and the how we do it. Okay, we're historians. We get excited about this. But I know full well that most people didn't like history when they were right? They hated history classes. Um, I actually, I go to visit his, uh, school history classes now. I go to APUSH classes, you know, AP, AP uh, American history and AP European history and AP world history classes. Um, and these are college level classes offered to high school students. And I like to go and talk to these students and, and, I'll, and I'll ask the teacher to close his eyes and I'll say, okay, how many students in the room right now, raise your hand, you hate history. Because I know you're out there. You just hate it, right? And a bunch of them will raise their hands. And I'll be like, okay, the teacher can open their eyes now. Uh, my job here is to show you why I love history. And it can be a lot more fun than you think it is right now. It's not just about memorizing a bunch of stuff. It can be about nothing. <laughs> Yay. Yay. And then they're like, what? What's nothing? <clears throat> but honestly, I can, I can ask them to just start right there and write down what they think of when nothing happened. Just write down whatever they think. Like you could ask your listeners to do that right now. 
what do they think of when they think of nothing happened? And they'll pretty much come up with the entire contents of my book. <laughs> Once or twice, I've been surprised, but they've literally come up with some of the exact same examples. Ooh. Yeah, which is kind of wild when they have Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. But they'll get, they get the idea of it. And then they're like, mm-hmm. oh, oh, I never thought of that as something I remember. Because most people think that when nothing happened, it wasn't important. So they didn't want to remember anything. So it's, a, it's nice to be able to shake people up and say, this isn't what you thought your history class was. You thought your history class was boring. This isn't what you thought history was about. History can actually be kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. When, when I hear that, it makes me so sad because it's just a missed opportunity. And, you know, you, nobody hates history. Like, I, I mean, you know, unless I suppose like really severe misanthropes, but. No, I do believe people hate history. And I, um, I think it's so unfortunate, but they hate it because they had bad history classes. Sure. That's it. Had they, one bad class, right? Definitely. And I've had some teachers that I wish maybe didn't do the, didn't do this. I wish they were mathematicians. Um, but no, if you give, if you show people what you do, like I talk about what I do, what I do is People Magazine of history, you know, like <laughs> if we talk about what, what actually historians are doing, that's pretty exciting. No, I think we haven't done as good a job as we could do of self-promotion, honestly, because a lot of what we write, we write for other histor- historians, we write for other scholars, and we don't communicate well with the general interested public about what we actually do. So I kind of, I was hoping when I wrote this, and I wrote this in a way I've, I've never written before. I was hoping when I wrote this, that this would be something my cousin could pick up and mm-hmm. reading. Okay. I already asked her. One cousin said, okay, I kind of got it. And another <laughs> cousin said, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I just couldn't read it. And I'm like, dang it. I missed my audience. But okay. These are people who love me. So they're being honest. I have heard from other people who are not historians that thought this was kind of fun. So I tried to write in a way that was entertaining and that was more um, playing with the words and uh, showing how I was thinking rather than trying to tell people this is what happened on this date in this place. And the book ranges across time. It ranges across the world. I draw examples from all over the place. Um, Some people, I think, have picked up the book thinking it was about the pandemic. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, because then they say, well, it's like nothing happened in the past year. I'm like, okay, if you were lucky, right, you were <laughs> down, that was bad enough, but you were safe and you were healthy and your loved ones were healthy and you just had to wait it out. So it seemed like nothing happened. Mm-hmm. Just stuck in limbo. Like, you know how people talked about Blur's Day? Like they couldn't tell yesterday from tomorrow. That's kind of a historical consciousness of a, a blurred present that never becomes the past, Right. So some people thought nothing happened was was going to be about that. Other mm. have picked it up, I think, and looked for politics. They're like, oh, nothing happened and something damn well should have. Uh, right. So it's about failures to do something. And I'm like, that is kind of what the book's about also. Um, so while I don't get explicitly political, uh, the whole last third of the book is about um, failure, the failure of justice. And memories of injustice. When people remember that nothing happened and something should have, mm-hmm. it still hurts and it still causes pain and suffering and remediation is still desired. And, you know, that history is huge. <laughs> yeah. It's universal. Yeah. And, and constant. And so much, there's so much more of that than the, the one time justice prevailed. Um, so, yeah. 
So, okay. I, 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 we've kind of talked around this. I understand what we're doing. I think our listeners are intrigued and have some questions, but I still don't know what, what the capital N nothing you're talking about is. Right. I actually say that in the book, too, that you have to start. Luckily, in the book, you can see it in print, but you have to start thinking about nothing with a capital N. So it makes it a subject. It makes it an object. It makes it a thing. Nothing. Right? In a thing. We called it a no thing. Um, so it's a nothing. What is a nothing? Um, so this is where the book. Uh, sorry, this is where I had to uh, narrow the topic because it was way too huge, right? Which nothing was I going to look at? I had to eliminate zero. I had to eliminate quantum physics, uh, mainly due to lack of expertise, right? Uh, I had to eliminate uh, a whole lot of philosophy, existentialism, Buddhism, religious thought. I had to, so all of these things got set by the wayside. I looked at all of them. I thought, this is just too much. Nobody can write everything about nothing. It is just too big. So then I had to narrow it down and I thought, well, what do I love? I love history and I love historical consciousness. So I'm just going to look at what people are thinking about when they use nothing to refer to something in the past. So it's kind of like the invisible object of history. You can't put your finger on it, but you know it and you can call it something. You call it nothing. So that helped a lot. Uh, And that's when I, I realized I was looking at a couple of moments Moments when nothing happened, moments when people realized there's nothing left. Moments when people realized, I think, no, um, moment, there's nothing left. There's nothing out there. Nothing is the way it was. Now, that's a big one. A lot of people mm-hmm. say that colloquially, um, and they are either feeling nostalgic about the past or nothing is the way it was, and I miss it. Or nothing is the way it was. And boy, is that a good thing? Because <laughs> it was bad enough the first time around. Right. I could mention, oh, I don't know, some 70s fashion. I don't. Uh, nothing is the way it was. Uh, we were talking earlier and you said, you know, what does it mean to dial a phone? And yeah. you might talk to somebody who only has ever grown up with smartphone technology. And they're like, why do you call that dialing? Because nothing is the way it was. Things always change. Change is normal. Change is happening. And nothing is a word for change. So nothing has a lot of meanings. Nothing can be a lot of things. Uh, nothing can be a lot of things. That's already an oxymoron, isn't it? Mm-hmm. No thing. You're talking about one thing, right? <clears throat> nothing should be one thing. But it's a single thing that isn't that we recognize is. Right. It's, it, okay. it isn't, except it is. I know. And so some people are always doing the little munch figure, you know, with their hands over their <laughs> No! Right. At this point. And other people are like, oh, that's fun. Okay, let's roll with that. So Mm -hmm. rolling with nothing for a long time. (laughs) One of my favorite nothings actually is is um, Saul Bass's film. Uh, So I mentioned this in the all right. I have a discussion of this in the the end of the book under nothing happened. But he was this genius uh, designer, uh, graphic designer who was really active in the 50s and 60s. He designed a lot of the logos that you and I grew up with. Um, but he also made uh, an award-winning, Oscar award-winning documentary in the late 60s. Uh, oh, my gosh. And now I'm blanking. See, I'm drawing a blank. Ooh. This is another way nothing happens. It happens all the time, right? I'm drawing a blank. It'll, ca- it'll take me a minute to remember. The film is called Why Man Creates. 
So he, this is the Oscar-winning documentary. At the beginning of it, there's a four-minute uh, history of Western civilization in which he shows how nothing happened in the Middle Ages. Literally, nothing happened in the Dark Ages. <laughs> so this is something a lot of people remember from school if you uh, grew up with uh, a Western tradition history. So if you grew up in America in the second half of the 20th century, and unfortunately, still today, this is still being taught, probably learned that the Middle Ages were the Dark Ages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, yeah. that's because the Renaissance came later and the Renaissance was full of itself. And the Renaissance <laughs> said before me was garbage. So no, the Renaissance said that was a period of unenlightenment of darkness and we are recovering the genius of antiquity. So we are the Renaissance. The light comes back. So the Dark Ages got a back, bad rep back in the Renaissance and it kind of has never recovered. So Saul Bass is able to show that visually with darkness taking over the screen in the cartoon that he draws to show the transformation of Western civilization in the Middle Ages. Saul Bass and documentary filmmaking is a really interesting source to use for historical work, right? Yeah. And for historical work that isn't about documentary filmmaking in the late 1960s. And this uh, this was something that struck me all the way through with your book is that you used a very wide v- array of very interesting sources. Well, thank you. So tell us about tell us about what you used and why and how. I had way too much fun writing this book. It was so hard to finish because I was having too much fun. I was drawing connections between childhood memories and scholarship and teaching and what I've learned from my students and what I got from my daughter. I actually cite my daughter in the book, okay, which I know is not a typical scholarly thing to do. So my sources were me and my life and all of the things I've encountered. Because once you start seeing nothing, literally nothing is everywhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, 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 I can, I attest to this. I approve this message. I have had nothing going everywhere. There is nothing everywhere around me for days. Okay. So why is it a problem then if my sources are not only um, archival or my sources are not only from a library, my sources come from everyday life because everyday life is full of historical consciousness. That totally makes sense to me. I'm thinking about the past and I think about what did I do yesterday? So the past is already part of my life. I just sort of am more living that life than most people. (laughs) I think I'm just hyper aware of it. So my sources, I mean, the Saul Bass film, for instance, my dad um, brought that film home and showed it to uh, his family on a reel-to-reel projector that he borrowed from the school where he taught. So we, he brought it home and he showed it to us in the living room and I've always remembered it. And then I started showing it to my students. And then, and then after I started writing a book about nothing, I realized that Saul Bass got it. He totally got it. He understood how nothing happened and he had represented it visually. So my sources are eclectic, but the I guess the common factor that they have is me. Uh, it's what I've been reading all my life. I go to a bookstore. I went to a bookstore last weekend. How fun is that, right? To be able to go to a bookstore again. And they had this awesome kids section. And I saw in the kids section, a picture book, a new one called The Boy Who Knew Nothing. And I was like, yes, <laughs> cool. Yes. <laughs> And he totally gets it too. It's a wonderful book. It's by James Thorpe. I can highly recommend it. Oh, that's very cool. Once, once nothing is on your radar, it's everywhere. 
So then it's just a matter of picking and choosing. And I had sources that were poems. I had sources that were films. I had sources that were um, news reports, like about the, uh, the Dallas bed rest study. I saw that in an anthology, New Scientist, about guys who were paid to sit and do nothing for a few weeks so that the scientists or the doctors who were conducting the study could figure out the effects of uh, weightlessness and anti-gravity in space. What does lassitude do to the human body? Okay, so the Dallas bed rest study was about a bunch of guys doing nothing. Doing nothing. Paid to do it. So that wow. was fun. Yeah, um, but this makes perfect sense, especially when we're talking. Uh, this is a book about historical consciousness. It's a book about how, uh, I mean, like you know, with with history, we look at societal change, how societies like change over time, and how societies perceive things. But this is a book that's very much about how individuals perceive things as well. Oh, thank so, you. I think that's exactly that's exactly it. I think that's very perceptive. So it's so, so no. Then your then your source material is a perfect example of that. It's also me resisting uh, decades of being told that scholars, uh, especially historians, don't use the first person. Uh -huh. Can we be done with that? I know, but we are so not done with that yet. No. It's so, so disingenuous. <laughs> like we're not part of the story. No, I, I only speak truth. Okay, Capital okay. But think about how many people want to read history because they don't care about you as a historian. They care about learning more about the past and they're interested in that past. So, I mean, I, I respect that genuinely. That's not what most people who are reading history are looking for. It's just that being as aware of historical consciousness as I am, I always want to know, well, why did the historian pick that topic? What are they bringing to that topic that they're not sharing with me? That does affect what they're writing. That does affect why it's being written about now and not 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I always think the historian is part of the story. Yeah, I, I mean, of course, the historian's part of the story. And that's a thing that a lot of the other disciplines, which, you know, I don't love, like I love history, but like sociology, anthropology, they're really good at admitting that in this way that we're yes, not. Absolutely. But I no, mean, I, I think, you know. And anthropologists I, definitely shaped my historical consciousness in graduate school. Um, so, yeah. Um, so it's about it's about drawing on the sources um, that I have drawn on my whole life, but I hadn't drawn on them in this particular way, right? So when I was reading Jane Austen or I was watching Saul Bass's film, I wasn't thinking about nothing, right? I was reading, so I wasn't doing nothing. I was actually doing something, right? So I wasn't thinking about nothing, except it also turns out that thinking about nothing is an excellent way to do history, <laughs> right? So all those times you've been sitting in front of a blank screen or sitting in front of a blank page and you're like, oh, nothing is happening. Well, there you go. You were already doing nothing. And that can be remembered and discussed as a historical experience. And it turns out it's so familiar to everybody. It's a kind of universal historical experience in a way that is about humanity and about how we are as social critters, rather than about what it means to be a nation or what it means to be a member of a race, a class, a gender. Those things matter, right? But there's more. And we haven't been doing this yet. So I was trying into some of that more mm -hmm. and successfully and it, it's just um as well as the book itself i feel like it could really have uh it could it could have, it could really uh it's a gentle intervention i think in the way we the the <laughs> oh, uh, gentle uh, reader i hope you won't mind yeah <laughs> yes in the in the way we do the, the our job i think that's kind of interesting um 
And so you chose these three episodes, right? There is, well, you, you just listed them and I can, you know, these three episodes of historical consciousness instead of choosing an event or a time or something. And I think we've talked a little bit about it, but like, was that a conscious decision or did it just happen because you had so much going on? Well, I think it happened. Um, I started seeing the connections and the affinities among these topics because I was passionate about them. And the source of passion is me, right? So there was some connection inside me that was making this work. Um, I've always been interested in the early 19th century as a period of, of history. And in, in Germany, that's also the period of romanticism. So um, this is, I could have gone the route of doing the art and the literature, you know, because that's a rich subject, but there's already a lot on that. What really stuck with me was the way that my amateur historians uh, that I wrote about in my first book talked about the, the experience of realizing that the past was important and they had trouble putting it into words. And it struck me that the way they were thinking about looking at the remnants of the past, especially ruins, like the romantic painters are really famous for doing beautiful images of ruins in landscapes. And those ruins are from antiquity, but sometimes they're more recent, like from the Middle Ages, from the Dark Ages, right? And they're usually caused by war, but they often can be just about the decline of a, within a society, okay? So there's ruins in a landscape, and the romantic looks at ruins and says, I can't quite put it into words, but I find this so moving, this presence of the past, this reminder that something is no longer there is so moving. And it struck me that they were talking about the sublime. The sublime is that experience that can be, it can be divine, an experience of the notion of the divine. It can be a, an aesthetic experience, something that's so beautiful, it just moves you, right? Everybody knows sort of what that feeling is or can be like, but everybody's had a hard time putting it into words. And so I was thinking about the way that the sublime is beyond expression and that ruins trigger this notion of the sublime. And I thought, it's as if there's nothing left and there's nothing I can say to fully express how I feel about that. And so that sensibility started sounding like an experience of nothing to me. So that was a way that I was drawing on my particular background and it caused me to see something I wouldn't have seen otherwise. And I think that's what I've been striving for as a writer all my life to, to see things differently then other people have seen them mm -hmm. and yet still be able to put it into words. And sometimes the words fail you, but that's where puns come in because, <laughs> because no, thinking about when you see multiple meanings of things, that's how you make a pun. It's, you right. know, it's a joke. And some people think it's a really weak joke. Okay. But puns are about seeing multiple meanings of the same word at the same time. And you sound out all of them and you see which one sticks. Right. So, I think, I think puns come out of trying to express something verbally that you haven't been able to express before. And sometimes the pun just clicks and it helps you see something differently. That is so cool. I'm going to have to think about this a lot more now. <laughs> well, wow. nobody wants to talk about the theory of puns. It's more fun to make puns. No, this is, I'm pretty into talking about the theory of puns right now, actually, as it turns out. I, I, I disagree. Au contraire, I'm enjoying it. Um, yeah, that is a wonderful way to think. And I think I might really have gotten this now. I think I find like that, I think it's all it snapped into my head, what we're talking about. 
Cool. Okay. So what you were just talking about, this ruinophilia, you call it in the book. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's in this section, Nothing is the Way It Was, which is a great title too. And it's very, it's evocative. Like, ah, oh, you know, and I, I'm, I'm of a certain, I'm of an age that I look at the world around me and I find myself kind of mourning a past. And it's not a real past. It's a perceived past or I'm, I'm mourning experiences I can't have back, people that are gone, what have you. And this really stuck me like the nothing is the way it was about this change. What, so tell me, tell, tell us what you're, what did you want to do here? What's the goal in nothing is the way it was? So, well, I'm thinking two things. One is um, it really uh, struck me that you said, you know, you're of an age where you're starting to appreciate that nothing is the way it was. And there's aspects of your past you can't have back. And I was remembering that when I was in, I think, early grad school. So like I was in my early 20s. Um, I had this intense discussion with a couple of classmates about whether we were too young to write about certain subjects. And I adamantly said, no, no, we can already write about this. And they were adamant that, no, we don't have enough experience. And that conversation has keeps coming back to me. Mm-hmm. So I thought even kids can appreciate that some things are not the way they were anymore. And I think our, our kids who've lived through the pandemic, for instance, mm-hmm. or kids that lived through 9-11, for instance, got really shook up really fast. And I'm sure there are traumas all over the world, right, that have also shaken kids up. And so, um, so I'm thinking, I think it's, it's something that anyone is able to perceive. It doesn't just belong to age. And yet, and yet, I think it's also true, the older that we get, the more aware of this we are. And so that is part of the wisdom or knowledge that belongs to us as we get older. What struck me about ruins, um, I've always thought ruins were beautiful too, right? Yeah. As that was part of my young budding historian as I was drawn to these sites of antiquity and I wanted to go visit Athens or I wanted to go visit Persepolis or someplace where there were visible antiquity, you know, visit, someplace where antiquity was visible like that. Um, and yet, um, what drew me to ruins in this case was photography. So I was looking at photographs of ruins and I thought, wow, that doubles the historical consciousness. Not only are they drawn to the ruins and maybe experiencing something about the sublimity of them, but they want to record that. And by recording it, leave a record of a photograph then becomes a visual record of how they feel about the past. And it becomes a form of preservation. So I started thinking about nothing is left and nothing is the way it was kind of at the same time, because the the photographer then has created something to be left. So even Mm -hmm. the ruin uh, fades, hopefully the photograph won't or vice versa. (laughs) One or the other will survive. And I thought, how do people feel about that? Is there a melancholy with ruins or is there a pleasure of ruins? And where do those come together? And that's where Rose McCauley is credited with this notion. Of, of um, ruin and lust, or ruins philia, you know, this obsession with ruins mm-hmm. um, that some people just have too much of. And it's interesting as well because you're taking picture, you know, if you, you a photo of people or a time or an event you want to remember, this is a memory of something that's living and happening, a, a moment. But a picture of a ruin is celebrating perhaps that not that nothing's left right so you you know you go to this building and where so many things are gone but then you create a moment to remember your moment looking at the past and that is an interesting kind of 
Or even there was another moment as a tourist when I was in Berlin for the first time. And Berlin is going to become a place I love and I'm going to revisit several times. But the first time that I went was in the late 80s. So before 1989. And I was really struck by the fact that there were vendors selling postcards of World War II ruin sites, German bombed cities, and they're on postcards. And I thought, whoa, what does this say about how Germans and tourists feel about the past? And at the time, I thought, okay, this is part of the fascination with the Third Reich and its aftermath. And this is part of the legacy of the Third Reich in Germany. And so there's all these things that are coming together. But it really stuck with me. Why ruins postcards? What does that suggest about what people want to remember about the past? And do they save the postcard as a souvenir or do they mail it to somebody? Um, And then I started looking at then and now postcards. So a postcard that has an image of the ruined bombed city and a picture of, look, we've recovered. Here's rebuilt Hartford or here's rebuilt Berlin. And I thought, uh, what's being celebrated? Mm -hmm. So that got me thinking about the meaning of postcards, the meaning of the photograph as a form of memory. Um, What does it mean to say nothing is the way it was? Now it's like this. Is there mourning? Yes. Is there celebration? Possibly. Is there fascination? Yeah, definitely. So what is that fascination with nothing? And what does that tell us? And then I also, well, I literally stumbled in the, the Getty library. I was looking for other books and I saw this book just sitting on a shelf that some other scholar had paged. And it was Eva Mann and her photography. And it was called Nichts ist mehr wie es war. Nothing is the way it was. And I thought, wow, she gets it too. And she was in Berlin at the same time I was. Of course, she'd been there longer. But we, we overlapped. In 1989, a couple of her photographs are about the, um, the protests that were going on in East Germany right before the fall of the wall. But a bunch of her other photographs were very personal. They were about her and her friends, and they were set in ruins in East German towns. And I thought, okay, this means something completely different. And so I tried to decipher what she was thinking about. Um, So it's not to say that I got it right. It's to say that I found a photographer who seemed emotionally engaged in this question of what does it mean that nothing is the way it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, listeners, note this uh, source base, like note this. When I said that there was a variety of sources, there's also a, a kind of meditation on Roland Barthes. There's some Benjamin. There, there is something in here for everyone. Um, <laughs> I I, yeah, this. Um, and the idea that in remembrance, in taking a picture of a ruin, you're creating, uh, you're creating your own idea of like this moment that will change, you know, and then it, and it's fleeting. It's it's a it's a very interesting thing. I found myself a lot while I was reading, just you know, suddenly staring into space, like thinking about nothing, as it were, thinking about a lot of things that ended up being nothing. Um, and I think that our I think that your readers will find that quite a bit themselves. Like, oh, what's happening here? Right, you start reflecting. Yeah, I, I yeah. Uh, remembering too. I had a an undergrad uh, student in a class who was also uh, a psychology major. And she was working for a lab and the lab uh, experiment that was going on was monitoring people doing nothing. And they would just sit and be quiet for a period of time. And that was what the lab was actually interested in. What are people thinking? How are their brains working when they're doing nothing? I thought, okay, that's genius. Um, So 
to say about the variety of sources, again, I don't talk about psychology so much, um, but I talk about memory a lot because memory studies, this is such a huge field now um, and involves a lot of uh, influence from sociology, anthropology, psychology, history. Uh, there's so much that gets into it. Um, and I just kind of dabble, <laughs> I guess. Um, I, I pick and choose freely what resonates with me. So I don't go into psychology in, in any great depth, but lots of photography. Um, some very cool photographers, actually, while I was working on this. Um, some of the um, photographers who specialize in urban exploration photography, are they're a lot of fun. Um, and also uh, the photographer, John Darwell, who uh, gave me his photograph to publish. I'm really grateful. But he made this beautiful image of an empty hillside or, you know, it's like a, a ravine that has one road going through it. And so it looks like there's nothing there, right? It's, it seems like it's an image that is empty. And it turns out that this image is full of absence because what's missing are the healthy animals who should be grazing on those because this has been an, an outbreak of, of hoof and mouth disease. And it's been devastating to the local economy, the local farmers uh, and the animals, right? They're gone. So it struck me too, that um, when you're talking about, there's nothing there, this is a history of absence. This is a history of erasure. And it also reminds us that when we look at a photograph we didn't actually make, probably that should fall into the category of historical photograph. Not just that it's old, but like anything we didn't make, it records somebody else's memories. So for us, it becomes a source of historical knowledge that we actually know nothing about. Even if we recognize somebody or something in it, if we didn't make it, we know nothing about this image except what we bring to it, how we're looking at it. So we know nothing about a photograph until we start comparing it to other photographs or comparing it to our memories and our knowledge and find out more about it. So it really struck me that photographs are about absence, erasure, emptiness, and our ignorance. I mean, ignorance in a bad way. Ignorance is Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ignorance is fine. No, it, it is funny too, because now there's this great field called agnotology, right? Mm -hmm. It's about the study of ignorance. What what people don't know and how it impacts everything else or how right. and like why we don't yeah why we don't know what we don't know and how we got there right so and, this is a whole field of study now which i just find fascinating sure cuz it's not things we don't know it's not just cuz we like oops didn't know them right the status quo is a series of choices that were made we just may not know what they were and that's another fascinating idea just to wrestle with as an historian as well. I can tell you what, what did, you know, there was this decision and I can see how that plays out, but there were other paths. And so there's so many other options. There were other options then and there's other options now. And there were other things going on at the same time that we're still ignorant about and we haven't paid any attention to. Otherwise, you know, history would be over and done with. Right? We'd be done writing it because we'd know everything. We know it all. We're done. Yeah, right. That's ever going to happen. No, well, if only because we keep making more, but we we keep asking new questions and exactly. No, I think the past is always wide open. There is so much I haven't done with it. Um, one of the things I was thinking about when I was met with the or like doing nothing was meditation and how actively you're doing, how actively you are working, how hard you are working to do nothing. Right. And that that is somehow self-care and regenerative. 
I thought I found that really fascinating. See, and that's a great one I didn't even write about. And that it's perfect. It's a perfect example. And I also I was thinking also about sleep and how we know more about sleep than we used to. Um, but people thought when you when you're sleep, your brain's turned off. Things happening, right? Except your body is still functioning, you're still breathing, you're dreaming. I mean, we now know there's so much neurologically that's happening. But sleep was regarded as a time when you're not doing anything. Um, meditation, dreaming, uh, being uh, waiting in line when you're standing still doing nothing. You're waiting maybe, or you're um, bored. You're just sitting in a room looking at the walls going, here I am again, right? So there's histories of boredom that somebody uh, more fortified than, me, than I probably should write. But where are the histories of boredom? There's histories of ennui, right? You can talk about the uh, late 19th century writers who were too full of modernity and yeah. But real boredom like kids experience it now? I don't think yeah. it's yet. And you know, there's tons of that, right? There's tons of sitting around and waiting. And oh, that's, yeah, somebody needs to write that book. Somebody needs to write that book, whether it's the history that, of in line or the history of being bored. Yeah, the history of waiting in line. Oof. Okay, so sorry, this is a bad example, but you know, there's a board game now. It's no. not board, but there's a board game about waiting in line. It's actually a, a Polish game about what it was like under communism. When you just caught in line and waited in line for whatever was going to be sold because you had no idea what resources might be available today or tomorrow. So there's a board game about waiting in line. Waiting in line is part of it. Oh my God. That sounds boredom. Yes. Yeah, that, that sounds boring. Like that's like, what do you do? Hmm. All right. So you say history is not the same thing as the past. And that was just that was something I wanted to ask you about. I want some clarification there. Oh, okay. So um, I think I just say it straight out in the book. The past is what happened. History is what we write about it. Um, I want to give credit to the historians for the creative act. And I say creative not because we write fiction, because we don't. And we have ethical practices and standards, but to which we adhere. And they're important because truth matters. Facts are real. And also facts change. Okay, we accept that. So... Um, I want to give credit to historians for doing what we do and being inventive, creative, and seeing things differently. So seeing things in a new way. Um, that doesn't change the past. It doesn't erase the past. I think there's a lot of nervousness in American society right now about supposed changes that are being made to the past. We can't. The past can't be changed. In some cases, I would say in parentheses, unfortunately, the past can't be changed. The past happened, but it is so much bigger than you know. There is so much more to it than you know. You know about, and you can't see my fingers making the little pinch symbol, but you know about this much compared to now see my arms wide open uh, that the actual past was. So history is this ongoing effort to understand better and to understand more, whereas the past is just, it's there. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and I'm thinking obviously about like right now we're seeing the aftermath of the, the, oh, I can't remember her name. The woman who was just denied tenure at University of North Carolina by the, by the regents or the board for doing the, uh, the New York Times project on slavery. 
Nicole Hannah Jones. Yes, thank you, Nicole Hannah Jones. And and I'm thinking about that, you know, so if we don't talk about America's his past and slavery, then it didn't happen. If we just leave an empty space, there nothing nothing was there. Right. The 1619 Project has been so important in changing how people are starting, to, being willing to look at the past differently if they haven't had to before, if no one's asked them to before, if they've been privileged enough not to have to look at it differently mm-hmm. before. Um, so I get really uh, frustrated. And I guess, um, well, here's where I have to think how to say this. Um, uh, okay. Communities make their own decisions about how their students learn about the past. And those decisions in America are made locally and school boards make their decisions locally um, about how they're going to teach it. So the perception that something like the 1619 Project is going to undermine, in a federal sense or in a national sense, the notion of citizenship and pride in our country and therefore needs to be prevented nationally, I think it's just ridiculous. So as these decisions are being made locally, some decisions are being made nationally to try and intercept or intervene, right? Um, I'm, okay, so yeah, this yeah, but I, Look, I think I'm a it's a good employee. Okay, I, I yeah, nope, yep, good. Um, I I work for a social justice company on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, so it's a slightly different issue. But I I think it's a very good example of this. Like the past is there, that story exists. The I would say that those stories. Okay, this is what we really have to disabuse people of that the never singular. It never was. Think about the gazillions of people how they experienced life. That never had only one meaning. Why would we ever attach only one meaning to it? So we need memories, plural. We need histories, plural. And we belong to multiple collectives, right? Each one of us as an individual has multiple, you could say, constituencies that we belong to. And memories depend on those collectives. So in each of those groups, we have different memories that are sustained. And then they act in one person. Okay, but what happens to all those other collectives that you're not a member of? Where where are their pasts represented in, if you only write one history? And not, sure. Right. So we have to keep it plural. Yeah. Um, and the, these pasts, these stories, these histories, these pasts exist, whatever we do with the history about them. Right. So we can either, and, and we, we create, we are actively creating something when we, when we say nothing. Right. I think. <laughs> oh, thank you for saying nothing before I said nothing. I love it. <laughs> so the, the pasts are being actively uh, re-invoked and reimagined. One of my favorite philosophers of history is uh, Robin George Collingwood. And Collingwood wrote about the way the historian's imagination is where the past gets recreated. So again, how can we talk about writing histories without talking about the historian? Because the historian is the, literally the place where nothing happened. It happened in the historian's head. I imagined nothing. And now I'm talking about nothing. And now I'm writing about nothing. That's how histories get made, right? And then whether whether they resonate with people or not, that's how whether or not they're going to get remembered. So, you know, that's out of my control. So this, yeah, I don't, I don't ever want one state or one government to have absolute control over what I get to say or do, but also about what gets to be remembered. No, of course not. And ultimately, that will fail. Right. I mean, I think the history of totalitarianism has taught us that like that 
you can only create controlled narrative for so long that these stories exist and that you 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 can't completely shut this out you're not going to create an a nothing um so that's that's comforting and some of those histories get invoked in the final uh section of the book because that's where i'm um drawing on poetry from poland and poetry from chile and places where uh the the traumas that have been created through political sorry i'm not going to put this right um, I'm drawing on the histories of Poland and Chile, and these are places I'm not an expert in their histories, right? But when I read the poetry, I recognize experiences of repression and of totalitarianism, and I see how an individual responds to that and their pain. And the pain communicates that nothing happened when something should have. And it's, it's the pain that is remembered is the erasure of the memory. And you don't have to be an expert on the local history to understand that. Mm-hmm. can engage you to learn more about the past in those places. So you learn something about those histories to appreciate what these people are protesting about. So right. on, drawing on poetry, drawing on memoirs of and expressions of repression and lack of justice uh, is the biggest nothing happened in the end. It's the biggest open-ended open wound, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and this section, you really get to think about, you know, the idea that nothing is an action as well, right? That doing nothing is doing something. And that this is a place where uh, that you can, you'll spend a lot of time when you read this book thinking about that. Um, Exactly. Thank you. Exactly that. And, you know, I think it can it can be a surprise to people in the book that on the one hand, we start off with all the fun about puns and the the kind of a lightness to the first half of the book where uh, doing nothing. It can be fun to recognize how that's happening all the time. But then the book turns kind of serious. Um, Yeah, (laughs) it gets kind of serious. And so people have said, wow, how can you do both both of those things, you know, in one narrative? And I'm like, well, I've been teaching a class on the Holocaust for the last 25 years, and I can also go home at night and play with my kids, you know? So um, I think there's room for uh, recognition of pain and pun making in my brain. I can do both, and I can write about both. And it's not uh, to denigrate either experience. It's to embrace the idea that nothing has happened in all of these different ways. It's very nice. That's a that's a really nice. There's so much craft in this book. I think I I said that already. Um, there are just so many. It's really well put together, and you tackle this really amorphous idea, and the way you put it together is so nice. And then I love at the end. Um, there's nothing left to say as your title as you know, as you title your your conclusion. Um, just the nothingness that follows the end of the story, uh, and that I'm. St- that's going to stick with me for a while as well. I'll be thinking about that. Oh my! No, you're the kind of reader I'm. I'm, I'm treasuring. <laughs> you were responding to exactly the stuff that I got so excited about, and that was also, you know, my my uh, younger stepdaughter reading to my grandchildren and saying, "Well, anyone who's you know read a story knows that after the ending happens, and either it's happy ending and everybody goes off and just has a happy rest of their life, and nothing." happens everybody knows right and Mm -hmm. 
oh my gosh, yes, you know, you get this. And that resonated with what um, uh, I had also seen in uh, crows, plenty crows, right? Plenty coos. I'm going to have to check. I can't believe I'm blanking on a name again. I hate when I do that. Oh, it's. It's, it's what happens of, now. Uh, I used to have everything right at my fingertips, and now sometimes it takes days. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's plenty coup. That's how you say his name. No, um, so what um, she had, what so what she remembered about reading and the idea that nothing happens at the end of a good story because there's just the happiness that follows, um, that also resonated with what Plenty Coup's memoir had expressed, which was that, uh, and at the end of his history, the way he perceived an end to his own story, it happened before he died. He lived in the nothing happened afterwards. The way he remembered the end of his story was that the buffalo were gone and then nothing happened. And I read that and I thought, wait a minute, he, but he lived for a decade after that. He was writing about this. He ended his own story. Well, he was living in the period of erasure and repression and the losses that he was dealing with. And so it was as if nothing happened afterwards. And that just blew my mind. So I appreciate that you're, you're reminding me about this. This is, you know, it's a painful subject. Um, on the other hand, there's also the idea that nothing happened uh, after the end of the story. But did nothing happen after the end of my book? Uh, no, I keep collecting more nothings because over the place. So I have lists and lists of, of ones that either people have suggested to me or that I have found. So um, nothing keeps happening. And you don't need a signpost, you know, like on this site in 1897, nothing happened, right? You don't need one of those for every single one of them. They're just going to keep going on. There's tons of them. Wonderful. Well, I mean, there is also in your nothingness that follows the end of this story. Well, that's not true either. So I'm curious about what you're working on now. Oh, my goodness. Um, one of the things I, well, I'm still collecting nothings. Um, I'm actually uh, following up on the idea that we know nothing about a photograph. So this is probably talking a lot about photographs. Um, I'm really interested in captions and how captions shape what you think you know about a photograph. And it struck me that um, historians have been remarkably bad uh, for the last 150 years or so about using photographs as historical sources about labeling them in their books. They often get republished in a book with no caption at all. Um, and sometimes without any reference to the image in the text. Uh, so what kind of meanings are they counting on a reader to be able to understand in the book? So I'm interested in what kinds of information travels with a photograph. I'm interested in the way that photographs have social biographies and they as objects, right? As three-dimensional objects. Um, and then digital, that's another matter. But looking at historical photographs as three-dimensional objects and the information that doesn't always travel with them that was created maybe and generated at the time it was printed or reprinted, how do we keep track of that recirculation? And so to me, a caption comes to mean the history of the photograph, um, but it's an incomplete one. Maybe it was never provided. So I want to think about how have people responsibly used captions, how have people irresponsibly used captions, and what do we really need to do to say that we know something rather than nothing about a historical photograph? I feel like that's going to be a place, too, where you're going to have to 
reckon with like lying and purposeful obfuscation. And erasure, right? The the commissar disappears, right? In that famous set of Soviet photographs of, you know, people literally being erased out of the image. And that's, I mean, photographs have been manipulated since they were invented. That's nothing. That's nothing new. (laughs) There's nothing new under the sun. Let's face it. There we are. Oh, what a fabulous place to end our chat. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for inviting me to talk. It's been really fun to talk to somebody who clearly gets it. You are are such an enviable reader. I'm very glad to have found you as a reader. Wonderful. I am so glad you wrote the book. And I had a really good time talking to you as well. Thanks so much. And I will, uh, we'll talk again after your photograph project. No, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, this really was fun. Thank you.